If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Shirley, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 206 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for what's sure to be a classic, nostalgic interview for the ages. With me today is Atari 2600 game developer legend Howard Scott Warshaw. He developed Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., author of Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. I leave no Easter egg unturned as I dive in with Howard Scott Warshaw, and that's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, a quick reminder, episode 204 with Hollywood legend Ruta Lee. Amazing stories. You love the Rat Pack? You're going to love Ruta Lee. You love the Twilight Zone? You're going to love Ruta Lee. Also, our bonus episodes from Crossing the Streams, where we serve up TV binge-watching suggestions. Awesome stuff. But right now, we must turn our attention to Howard Scott Warshaw, developer of what is considered one of the greatest games of all time, Yars Revenge, and one of the worst games of all time, E.T. You may be familiar with the E.T. story about all the Atari E.T.s being buried in a desert. That's this guy. He developed that one. All right, we're talking about that so much more right now. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, Atari 2600 legend, creator of Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Saboteur, and the upcoming Yars Revenge sequel. Also, author of Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, in for a treat, my guest today, Howard Scott Warshaw. What? Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. I am so excited to have you here. I, 12-year-old Jeff, spent all his money on Atari 2600 and cartridges. I can remember to this day writing out the business plan to my parents. I didn't call it a business plan at the time, but just saying, here's my money. Here's how I'll figure out how to pay this. This is how I pay the tax. (laughs) Let's go to Toys R Us. (laughs) Yars Revenge was definitely part of that. I'm pretty sure Raiders and E.T. must have been as well. And so I'm excited to talk to you about that and the myth behind E.T. and your self-proclaimed killing of the industry. (laughs) Yep. The myth and the reality. It's all here. It's all here. So let's start with just how you got into the video game industry. At the time when you joined Atari, it's an emerging industry. It was a fledgling industry, right? It was a new medium. I mean, this was the beginning of interactive entertainment. And I went to Most of the people who went to Atari went there to make games because that's what it was all about. Except me. I always have to do things the odd way or the different way. I didn't go there to make games. I thought it was cool to make games. I went there because I was so unhappy at Hewlett-Packard, where I was working as a multi-terminal systems engineer on some state-of-the-art stuff that wasn't very entertaining to me. It wasn't very interesting. And I heard that Atari did more intense kind of programming 
than I was doing at Hewlett Packard, which appealed to me. Also, I was kind of a zoo case at Hewlett Packard. I tended to act out and be a little more wild than most of my uh, programming compatriots. So I heard that the environment at Atari was much more wild and out there and place where acting out would be perceived as normal. And so that sounded good to me. And the idea they made games was just sort of a great extra bonus. Yeah, from the book, it sounds like it was it was quite the party culture. You t- you talk about the use of drugs right right off the bat. Oh, that's an <laughs> understatement. I mean, there was a lot of rumors and a lot of stories about drugs at Atari and partying at Atari and stuff. And so I just want to set the record straight right now. There was a tremendous amount of drugs at Atari. There was absolutely a lot of drugs at Atari. But the real drug, the apex high, the thing you really really chased after at Atari wasn't the pharmaceutical high. It was releasing a video game and putting a game out there and seeing it advertised on TV and being able to walk into a store and seeing your work on the shelf or seeing it on the demo system, better still. And at one point, I actually experienced what I would call the Apex Atari high. And that was going into a store. My game is on the demo system. And I got to see several kids fighting for the controller for the chance to play the game. It doesn't get a lot better than that at Atari. That has to be an incredible moment to be able to kind of see it in action because that's that's unfiltered, that's real. It doesn't get realer than that. People can blow smoke all they want about anything. But when you're watching some kids fighting over that demo station at Toys R Us or wherever you're at, like that's the real deal. Like that's- That was arriving. That was being there. It was a true moment and it was an amazing feeling. Totally exhilarating. Atari was full of moments like that, though. Atari, Atari was a very was the most emotional place to work that I've ever been. But it was a full range of emotion. The thing about Atari is you could have an amazing day one day and be on top of the world, and you could come in the next day and not be sure if you're still going to be working there by the end of the day. It was an extremely volatile environment where anything could happen and anything did. <laughs> That's crazy. I do have one other question about that demo station, though. Did you ever approach the kids and kind of maybe just go, you know, <laughs> or it's just like, did you ever like tip them off who you were, like that, that you were kind of observing and, and break that fourth wall, if you will? I thought about it. I did not do that, though. I would go up to the kids and say, hey, what, what's the name of that game? <laughs> and, they, and see if they knew it. And I'd go, is that any good? You know, and hear their feedback. But I would not go to them and say, hey, you know, I'm the guy who did that. I did have an experience like that once, though, that was very interesting at a, at a video game shop. There was uh, one of the conventions going on. And when I go around to the booths at the conventions, if people have old 2600 cards, I always ask them if they have my games. And I went up to one booth at a show and I was speaking at this show. It was a little while before my talk. I went to one of these booths and I said, hey, do you have any Yars Revenge? And the guy says to me, yeah, he goes, in fact, the guy who made the game was just here a little while ago. I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I said, you know what? I said, I don't think that's true. And he's like, really? I I said, yeah. I said, because I'm the guy who made this game. And I showed him my license, my driver's license. I said, I said, I'm the one who made this game. I said, so you're telling me somebody's going around saying they're me. That was an interesting, I, that was it was a very unusual form of identity theft that I was subjected to. And it was, uh, 
quite a weird moment. A weird moment, but also maybe a little surreal. It's, I guess, in a way, an honor that someone would think it cool enough to be you, right? Yeah, I was just <laughs> glad he wasn't up on the stage talking when it was my turn to go to my speech. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that but was, I did open this talk with that story. It was interesting uh, and nobody identified themselves as the person who was doing it. So no one wanted to come clean with that one. No, taking credit was a big issue at Atari though. But it wasn't always the way, right? Like you hid your initials in your games, but you were one of the first people to actually get credit for author credit for an Atari game. Uh, the truth is I am the only person I think who ever got author credit on an Atari video game. Because it was Atari's avowed policy to never give programmers credit. They wanted it to be an Atari product. Other, like Activision and Imagic, the other game companies, they made it a big thing about who did this game because they wanted to have fan followings. They wanted people say, oh, you want a David Crane game or you want a Rob Fulop game. Right. But uh, Atari didn't want to do that. But I actually, and this is what I do. I have ways of creating uh, messes that people have to figure out what to do with, because I always create new situations. What I did with Yars Revenge was I invented the backstory. Uh, no one had ever really done a backstory for a video game before, and I wrote a backstory for Yars Revenge in addition to doing the game. And so, and they decided to do a uh, a comic book to illustrate the uh, the backstory. So they don't have credits on the cartridge, but they had to have credits for the comic book which went out with the product. And one of the credits on the comic book was the game programmer. So I actually got my name. I, I was credited as a game programmer in an Atari product that went out. It's the only time it ever happened at Atari. Even my subsequent games did not have <laughs> my credit in it. It was just, it was amazing. But I am, I think I stand as the only Atari programmer ever to have been credited with their product. That was kind of cool. That is really cool. Yeah, so Yars Revenge, backstory, Easter eggs and a pause mode. Pause mode. Uh, yeah, nobody had a pause mode in VCS game before that. You know, it just seemed like a nice way to go. If someone's going to play a really extended game, you shouldn't make bladder control one of the parameters they have to master to do well in the game. That was my feeling. Right. If you don't, if you're not trying to get extra quarters out of someone, there's no, there's no incentive to, to get them to not go. To exactly. The Exactly. I mean, a lot of the thinking about making VCS games with any medium, right? It was with the home games, the video games was a new medium. And then home games was a new medium beyond video games. And the thing is with any new medium, what we always do is the first thing we do is we copy everything that worked in the previous media first. That's the first thing we do, right? The first TV shows were just radio shows with a camera in front of them. People didn't, they didn't have the killer app yet, right? Right. And so the first thing they do with home video games is copy coin-op games. And coin-op games don't have pause because you don't want to stop someone pumping quarters into a machine. It's ridiculous, but pause in a coin-op game. But I just realized we were making home games. I, we, didn't, we didn't have the same restrictions. And that was both my benefit and my poison at Atari because the kind of thinking I would put into a game demanded more upfront of players. The credo at Atari was easy to learn, tough to master. That's what a video game has to be. And it's true that a coin-op game has to be that, it has to be easy to learn and tough to master. But the easier you make a game to learn, usually the more shallow the game is going to be. It's hard to put a lot of depth into something that's very easy to acquire. It can be done. You look at games like chess or Go or Backgammon. Those are pretty easy games to learn, and they're really deep games. They have a lot to them. Right. But that's three games out of the history of gaming <laughs> you know, that really have that. Most games require a greater en entry uh, cost you know, in terms of learning. 
And my feeling was, why do easy to learn, tough to master when you could make a little tough to learn and tough to master, and then you can make a deeper game? Because if I can ask more of a player to learn up front, uh, I can give them a deeper and more complete game experience. So I did that. Of course, not all players like that, because a lot of players do want to just pick up a game and roll with it and not have to learn anything or read anything to go. And some of those players, eh, they weren't my kind of players. (laughs) (laughs) Those were, you know, they didn't necessarily appreciate uh, what I was bringing to a game. So right out of the gate, though, at Atari, you adapted that unique personality that you mentioned earlier that you had at Hewlett Packard. And they asked you to adapt, like you said, moving from the old medium to the new Star Castle, which was a coin-op game. And this is what eventually became Yar's Revenge. But you're like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Well, the funny thing about Atari is that I mean, because I, I was pretty much an iconic character in Atari. I think that's safe to say. But what a lot of people don't know is when I first, after my first round of interviews with Atari, they rejected me. They weren't going to hire me. So I almost didn't get into Atari, but I wore them down and kept pushing and I begged and pleaded with them to give me a chance. So I took a huge cut in salary and probation. I came in on a totally probationary period. I'll just, let me do anything. Let me just give me a chance to show you. And so they give me a first assignment, which is Starcastle to convert it. And the first thing I do, I come back to them and say, you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't think this is a good game to do. But I did tell them, you know, I, th- I don't think it'll work. I think this game is going to suck as it is on this machine. And I explained why. And then I said, here's a game I think that would not suck and explain that and lay that out. And I was lucky. They let me go ahead and do it. That is what went on to become Yars Revenge. But Yars Revenge almost didn't happen. I almost didn't happen. Talk to me about the process of building Yars Revenge, because I, I think it's it's important to understand the background and the process of creating the most successful and one of the most revered games of all time later when we talk about E.T. And it's <laughs> right. <laughs> Another revered Right. For, for a different reason. I think the contrast of understanding the uh, the right way to do it. Right. It's a contrast of the notable and the notorious, for sure. So with Yar's Revenge, I mean, and it wasn't Yar's Revenge originally. The naming of Yar's Revenge is a whole nother story. But originally, when I set out to make a game, I didn't want to just make a game. I wanted to make a calling card. I wanted to make a splash. I wanted to do something that was going to introduce me to the gaming the game creating community in a way that was that was significant that was profound that was my goal and also to try and do things that people hadn't seen i wanted to prove i could innovate that i could step onto this machine and show people something really do something worth looking at because most people their approach to a video game which makes sense is it's a program it's a computer program you write code and you're going to write graphics code that's going to manipulate images on a screen and that's the way people think about it most game programmers think of a video game as something that's on the screen that's what they're thinking of and that's not how i think of it i think of a game as taking place in the mind of the player so when i'm programming when i'm actually writing code what i'm doing is i'm organizing stimulus both audio and visual that's going to create some sort of synaptic response. It's going to make something happen in your brain that's going to make you feel a certain way. And that's going to be interpreted as fun. That's the way I look at video gaming. That's one level. The other level of it is I don't approach it as a tech person. I approach it as a filmmaker because I love films. I love movies, TV, all that stuff. Just love it. Always loved it. And so when I think of a video game, I think it's a broadcast medium. And so I want to make something that just 
is worth consuming. It's an exciting piece of media. So these are the things that I brought to it. So instead of just thinking, what are some rules and what's a game and how do you play it? The first thing I thought of was, how can I put something up on this screen that's going to call to people? That's going to, people are going to see it and go, wow, what's that? So I started right off the bat with animations and some glitter effects and some interesting things. And I was trying to do something that was bang for the buck, right? To maximize your bang for the buck. Because the 2600 is also an incredibly limited resource. You only had a few K of code and 128 bytes of RAM. I don't know how tech your listeners are, but that is not a lot of resource to work with. And within that, you have to do everything, which is a great challenge. It's a pain in the ass on one level, but it's a huge challenge. And so I set about doing what I do, which is to look at this stuff and just say, what can I do? What can I do that's cool? What's something that would be fun? And I came up with, I started with an animation and I came up with that glitter zone and I had, I had blocks of things that are moving and rotating and running around. My feeling was everything has to move every, I animated color in addition to animating shapes and motion and nothing stands still because the thing is you, if anything stands still, it's dead. You know, there's a saying they have in the jungle is that if it doesn't move, it's food. (laughs) And that's the thing is I wanted to be that the player has no respite. There's no break, even though there's pause mode, right? It's like you have to move to stay alive like a shark. And there's constantly threats and constantly color things going on. And I also added a layer of soundscape because in filmmaking, you know, you can save a lot of money by using sound effects instead of actually getting the actual equipment in place to do it. You know, if I play a foghorn, that's a lot cheaper than actually having to rent a luxury liner and show it on screen. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. Have to take a quick break. I want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my magical conversation with Howard Scott Warshaw. We're going deeper into the magic of sound in video games. And we're back. Right. So I use sound not just to be a bleep bloop to mark events in the game. I tried to use sound as a soundscape to uh, dictate mood and build tension. So there are things, there are subtle changes in the sounds of the game as you move or as you do certain things or that warn you that some danger is coming up. And I think that was a big part of the impression of the game. A lot of the things that were in the game, I I was able to utilize those in ways that people just hadn't seen before. So it was exciting. And it was exciting for me as a newcomer to go in and do some stuff and have people who are veterans on this machine go, wow, how'd you do that? They're like, wow, that's cool. That was exciting. That is exciting. And I have a question, Howard. When you get to Atari, this is this is your first game. So you don't have like all this background doing it and all that kind of stuff that you said, oh, I did this last time. I'll do it. What were some of the inspirations that you kind of saw? Like, oh, that thing, I, I'm just to make this, that thing on Missile Command, like, boom, I've, what if I did this way? You know, what were like some of the like uh, glitters of inspiration, whether I guess from Atari or anywhere that you might have got that said, oh, I can I can visually adapt these concepts. Jeff, that's a really cool question. No one has ever asked me that before. So I have to say, honestly, the inspirations that I got were not very much from other games. They weren't even from the game I was supposed to be copied. <laughs> to <tell you> the <laughs> truth. The inspirations that I got were more from movies that I had seen that I thought were particularly good and from the machine itself. So it wasn't like I wouldn't say 
Now, some people would say, here's what I'd like to do on the screen. How can I do that on this machine? And instead, what I would do is I would come and look at the machine really intensely from different angles in different ways and just try to notice different weird bit patterns or things. And I would say, what can I do on this machine that nobody's expecting me to do? What's something weird I can do on the machine? And how can I make that part of the game, right? It's sort of like the inverted thinking. That's how I came up with the ion zone, right? It's like the idea is, you know, we have very little space on this machine, very little space. And most graphics, you have to take up memory space to put the actual bit patterns for the graphics in. And then you have to put them in the registers and the graphics registers as you go down the screen. And that's how you make graphics appear on a screen in the 2600. But it costs you a lot of time plugging the things in the registers and, and picking up the data. And the data takes up space itself, room that's precious room. So I started to think, how can I make graphics that don't need graphics maps? And so what I did with the ion zone is instead of using extra graphics to create that, I used the code. I mean, I already have the code in the cart. The, the programming code has to be there. So I just, and it was sort of like was a semi-randomized pattern if you look at the bits in computer code. So I just grabbed the code, put that in the graphics register, and then put the same thing in the color register. And it automatically randomized both the graphics and the color and made this great glittering effect. And it cost me zero memory. <laughs> and, and it actually saved time in the coding. So that's the way I would think. It's like, what can I do that's cheap programming wise and that has some real impact stimulus wise on the screen? That was what I looked to for inspiration. And then when I'd see that and I'd make something happen, I'd say, okay, so what can I do with this to create a game out of it? Now I have this cool thing, but I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> so now I got to figure out some meaningful way of incorporating it into some sort of game action. And that's where the real challenge is. I love that. Very innovative. I guess there's some benefits too to being first. You can kind of, that's how you, you become the trailblazer and people started imitating you and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I got that from Howard. <laughs> I stole that from Howard. It's true. And whenever we would develop a technique, we would publish it to the other programmers in the group. It was a very uh, congenial environment. People were happy to share and share their techniques and ideas and things like that. And it meant something to be able to create something new and share it with the others. That's awesome. So the whole combination of the controller, the whole, it's a whole thing, right? And I, when you, as you were describing it, the movie, that's, I think how I am when I play a game. So I imagine uh, all people are, at least most people are, it's like you, you're becoming one with this game and that's, that's how you get so intense with it and have to start right over. It becomes like this crazy part of you while you're playing it. Very much so. All right. So you name it, you name the game. Very clever how you name the game. I love that story. <laughs> when you talk about the process, you talk about first playable. It's sort of like the first kind of milestone where you're playing, and it's a version of the game without final graphics where people can kind of get, it's basically a rough draft, right, of the a beta version, alpha version, maybe even like even before that. I don't Right. It would definitely be pre-alpha. If first playable is the first time you can check the rules of the game and the first time you can get the experience and the feel of the game. It's a very important milestone in the game. When I got Yar's Revenge to first playable, it sucked. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was uh, kind of a devastating experience because, yeah, you wanted to know about the process of it. So I had some ideas and I had a general direction of the game play, of course. I mean, I had some idea of it. And I was very focused on the sizzle and trying to make things really shine and look cool. I got all the pieces together. I got some of the sizzle in and I got it to the point where I could start to actually play and experience the game. And it wasn't very good. It was cumbersome. The, the only thing I really kept 
from Star Castle was the controller scheme. It had the uh, the classic asteroids thing of, you know, you rotate right, left, or you push for forward and you control your momentum because I needed one extra way to handle the joystick and joystick back would have been able to launch this cannon, the Zorlan cannon, which is essential to win the game. You can't really get anywhere in the game if you can't launch that weapon. So I was kind of married to that controller configuration. And as I started to play with that, it was horrible. And most people who picked it up didn't like it. Every once in a while, there'd be one or two people who liked that controller scheme and they enjoyed it and they moved around and it was fine, but it it wasn't intuitive and it didn't feel good. And it really dragged the whole game down. And now I'm thinking, oh God, what do I do? What do I do? And someone suggested that I just start moving the player directly instead of doing the right, left rotate, just move, you know, just move it directly. And I thought that's a good idea. But if I do that, now I have no way of launching the cannon, you know, the key weapon in the game that you need to win the game. So I was very resistant to doing that. But at one point I decided, you know, what the hell? You got to take the feedback. You got to listen to the people. (laughs) You got to follow through. And so I did try that motion scheme and it did feel great. It really, it not only changed the feel of the game super positively, it was also easier to implement because I didn't (laughs) have to worry about inertia and momentum. You just go or stop. I just made it an instant thing. So it actually saved me code space. But now I had the problem. So how do you get a cannon? How do you get the cannon? Because the fire button is already used for your regular weapons. And then it occurred to me, you know, when you have to take something off the controller, you need to put it into the gameplay. And that was a huge turning point in the game. Because what I did was I fixed it so that the way you get the cannon is either by eating parts of the shield or by touching the monster, the co-time. And that's great because in order to get the weapon to kill the monster, you have to approach the monster and increase your risk. So it has that thing of like, you know, you need to take greater risks to get greater rewards, which is always a good correlation in a game. And it also made the game more dynamic. It forced you to move yourself around the screen more and it introduced more motivation because one of the things I didn't like about Star Castle was the visual focus in Star Castle is always locked in the center of the screen. And that's, I think that's monotonous. I want it like in filmmaking, what I said is I, one thing, uh, there's a great rule of filmmaking. They call it up, down, right, left, up, down, right, left. You, people, you know, you never notice like act really good action scenes in movies. A lot of times what you'll see is they, they start from one place and then another place. And it's like up, down, right, left, up, down, right, left. Something comes in from the top of the screen. Then something comes in from the bottom. Something comes in from one side, comes in from the other side. Star Wars is the classic classic example of that. So I put that in the game. I thought, well, what do we do? So to really do well in yours, you have to be running the player vertically, either up or down. And then there's the missile trailing you from the monster. And then you have to shoot something from the left side in and the monster is going to come from the right side out. But all this animated motion is going on in the periphery of the screen. And every once in a while, they all converge into the core of the screen. And visually, I just think that's hot, right? It's just an exciting thing because you have vertical motion, you have horizontal motion, it's all going on. And so it's a symphony for the eyes and the ears. And that's what I was trying to do. And once I made that change, that serendipitous change, the game came to life. And now suddenly a game that everybody thought was cool looking, but didn't play well, now suddenly people love. And it was an interesting transition. You know, suddenly I have the, I have the hot game. I have the game that people love. And that was super exciting. And so what do you do with that? You put it into months and months of testing. Why, why were they so nervous about your game? 
they weren't that nervous. There was, it's an interesting thing, but in the entertainment business, which is, I believe is what this was, there's an interesting phenomenon that, you know, success is great. Everybody wants to succeed, but everybody wants the success to be theirs. And some people don't want a success to be someone else's. And I think that was at the core because what I kept hearing, it's true that Yars Revenge was the most tested game in Atari history. No game had ever gone through that much testing. And why does a game keep going through testing? Either you test it and the testing isn't good, so you stop testing and you need to work on the game, or you test the game and it does well and you release it. You don't need to keep testing. But Yars Revenge kept getting tested. And what I found out was there was someone, there was this, this one person who kept saying the game isn't okay. Everybody loved the game. All the Every time they tested, the game would do great. But there was someone who was saying, there's still problems. There's still some playability issues. We're not real. I'm not really sure this game's working. I didn't know who it was, but it was weird. And they were obviously in enough of a position to cause these delays. So it, they tested it almost as long as it took to make the game. And it all came down to the uh, the big play test, the ultimate play test. The typical tests are focus tests where you get eight to 12 people and you give them pizza and they play the game for a little while and they give you feedback on the game. And we had done several focus groups and, and they all went well. And every time they do a focus group, because this is my first game, right? right? You're not really in the club until you release a game. And I wanted to join this club. I wanted to be an Atari game designer. That was, it was important to me to arrive in that place. And so they test the game and the test would come back. Great. People like it. Okay. Let's release it. Okay. Here we go. Uh, 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 oh no, wait, there's, there's some concerns about it. And so, okay. So we'd run another test. And how did this, oh, this went great. This went, cause I was at every test, right? I would be behind the two-way mirror watching everything. And it goes well. Okay, here we go. It, it works. It's fine. Oh, no, we're not going to release it yet. So finally, they did a play test. They do a play test where over 100 people come in over the course of a weekend. And they play two games. They play the test game and what's called the control game. You know, there's a game they're going to compare it to. So play tests are all about the control game. Like, what's the game you're going up against? So I'm waiting to hear. So what's it going to be? You know, what's going to be? They picked Missile Command. They picked 2600 Missile Command which was the absolute best game on the 2600 at the time, I believe. Best coin-op and best 2600 game. <laughs> yes, it was a killer game, yeah. and it was an excellent implementation done by a very good friend of mine, Rob Fuller. And I thought, no, no, this is... They're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill the game. <laughs> Somebody doesn't like Howard. We got to figure out who this is. <laughs> it's like something is up here. Yeah, and so... And so I flew to Seattle where they were doing the test and I was in the pit, you know, in there watching all the stuff going on. And the play test is not as interesting to watch as a focus test because it's just people sitting and playing, filling out sheets. But what's interesting is reading the sheets. And when the sheets started, the first sheet started to come back in the first sheet I looked at yours was just trashed. They absolutely trashed yours. Revenge on it. Loved missile command. I thought, God, this is brutal, brutal. I'm going to have to sit through a whole weekend of this. But it turned out that was the worst sheet for Yars for the entire weekend. I happened to see the worst one first and it got better and better and better. And when the smoke cleared at the end of the weekend, Yars Revenge beat Missile Command in the playtest. It actually beat the best game on the system and set a record for playtest results. And so it's like, okay, so can we now release it? So finally, whoever was complaining, they lost credibility at that point, I think. And, and the game did go out finally. It would have been fine if it would have gone out five months earlier. I would have been okay with that. <laughs> but uh, that's not how it went. 
It's like a Steve Kornacki thing going on. It's like, oh, the early <laughs> returns are in. It's, uh, exactly. You know, but don't don't exactly. worry, don't worry. That these counties haven't come in yet, and they're <laughs> yes. But we still only have sixty-seven percent of responding at this point. But we're declaring it. We're declaring it. It's uh, yeah. I'm a I'm a stat junkie. What can I say? All right. So this becomes your first million dollar seller. It finally gets released. Your first of many uh, million dollar sellers. You're a million dollar. Well, a million man. unit sellers. Yeah. I mean, it's. Yars Revenge sold a million units. Raiders sold a million units. Even ET after return still sold well over a million units. I think I'm the only game programmer ever, I think, who can say that every single, the only VCS programmer for sure, that every game I released was a million seller. That is incredible. Let's talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let's do. For a guy who loves movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? June 12th, 1981. It gets released. You were picked to do this game and you got to meet with Steven Spielberg. I didn't just meet with him. I had an interview with him, right? Because Steven Spielberg had to choose who was going to be the program. So whoever was going to do the game had to get cleared by Steven Spielberg. So I did got, I flew down to uh, Warner Studios in LA, got to spend a day on, on the lot at Warner's. That's a great story that's in the book about how I arrived there for a 9.30 meeting <laughs> and found out it got rescheduled to 3.30 in the afternoon. But that means I got six hours to go around unescorted Warner Studios. And that was quite an adventure. And then I get to hang out with Steven Spielberg, my idol, but I'm being interviewed. You know, he's interviewing me to do the first movie to game conversion ever. No one had ever done that before. But I think the thing that clinched it for me was when I called him an alien. I actually explained to Steven Spielberg my theory about how he is actually an alien, part of an alien advanced team preparing Earth to receive the aliens. And I uh, just want to tell him what a great job he's doing <laughs> and how it's going well. I really think that might have been the thing that actually got me the opportunity to do the game. And that was my next game, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was a grueling 10 months. So when I think Raiders of the Lost Ark, you being a movie fan, adventure, games, Makes a lot of sense to create the Indiana Jones experience. They, I mean, you must have been over the moon. I'd have a million questions on how you could even get any words out in front of Steven Spielberg. At that moment in time, it's like, it just seems like I'd be like, uh, uh, uh. no, I would have been <laughs> over the moon, except we couldn't get the SKG logo shot, you know, of the moon thing up there. So I couldn't quite go over there. <laughs> that would have been good. But I was, it was an amazing thing to be able to deal with Steven Spielberg, you know, look at him. He wasn't very involved in the game development. I mean, I, they just basically let me go and make the game, but I got to meet with him. Occasionally he would come up to Sunnyvale and we would have lunch and chat enjoyably. Very cool guy. Very cool guy. And the thing about Raiders of the Lost Ark is it really does lend itself to a video game. It's a great movie to do a game from because it has lots of challenges. It has lots of, of set action pieces and it has a through line, you know, that you work your way through to get from the beginning to the end where you want to go. So it makes a lot of sense for an action adventure game. And so the designing of the game wasn't that hard to do along the way. It was just, uh, it was a lot of work. It also, that was my first adventure game. And there's a big difference. Action games and adventure games are super different from a designer's point of view. And that is that, and I always think this is kind of an interesting thing. We'll see if anybody else thinks it's interesting. <laughs> so, the interesting thing about it to me is that an action game, the person who's making the game can experience the game just like any player. If you don't have special tricks and things hidden in it, uh, you know, you play the game, you set up the parameters, you play the game, you tune the game, but you can have the player's experience. I can understand what it's like for a player to play the game. With an adventure game, 
where there's secrets to unlock and things you have secret knowledge you have to discover along the way. If you're the person who's creating the game, you already know the secrets. You can't know what it's like to not know the secret and then try and figure out the secret. So when you're making an adventure game, the designer can never have the player's experience, right? Only in an action games can you have the player's experience. So when you're designing and tuning the game, for an adventure game, what you need is a sort of infinite supply of innocent people who are willing to come in and try it out and watch them do it and gauge it yourself that way and see how that is. And it's so it's a lot more work. It's a lot harder to tune an adventure game than it is an action game. But we did it. Raiders went well. Very well. Was the process similar to yours? I mean, just in terms of like the milestones and the time that you had to build it, you'd say? Yeah, it was pretty similar. There wasn't a set timeline for it. It was just, you know, work on this until it's a good game. That was basically the rule at Atari. You know, you work on it until it's a good game. As licenses became more prolific, that got replaced by work on it until your schedule's over. (laughs) Then make sure you release it because there were timing windows to be hit at that point. But when I did Raiders, it was just go ahead and make a game. And I set out to make the biggest adventure game that the 2600 had ever seen. In your book, you talk about how Raiders is kind of the forgotten game. It is. Raiders fell in a, a notoriety sandwich between Yars Revenge and E.T. You just you had so much different la- layers of success on either side. So <laughs> it's interesting because I like was digging around while I was preparing to talk to you. And, you know, there's all these simulators online. So you can play all the 2600s online. So I was kind of messing around with them again. It was kind of fun to to relive that. The one flashback, which isn't a, a Howard game, was when you guys you talked about the adventure game and that Easter egg. Oh man, I was, I did that every day. <laughs> That's the original Easter egg. I mean, Easter eggs is something that I kind of perfected. I really look to elaborate the science of doing Easter eggs, but I did not invent Easter eggs. Warren Robinette, who did the adventure game, he invented the Easter egg, but the Easter egg, I took Easter eggs to a marketing approved hook that you could talk about in manuals and advertise and make it, you know, a little extra something for the game. I always thought it was a great marketing hook. That's not how Easter egg started though. Easter egg started. Remember how I told you I was, you know, the only programmer who ever actually got credit in a game. Yes. That's where Easter eggs come from. They're about credit. More specifically, they're about proving authorship. Here's the idea. Atari does not want anyone to know who did what game. Okay. So I do a couple of games for Atari. Then I go interview somewhere else and they go, what have you done? They say, oh, I did this game for Atari. Really? Yeah, sure. You did. Like, no, really? I did the game. Well, we don't believe you. Okay. So how can I do it? They won't, if they call up Atari, Atari's not going to tell them who did the game. So there was this problem of like, how do you get credit for your work? And so what Warren did was he thought, I'm going to put something in the game that's very hard to find in the game, but it's not just anything. I'm going to put in something that identifies me as the author of the game. And so if it ever comes down to an issue of authorship, if anyone ever questions, you know, who made a game, there'll be, I could I'd say, just pull out the game. Let's take a look at it. And I'll show you something that will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm the author of the game. That's where Easter eggs come from. They came from a lack of trust between engineering and the company, right? It's a corporate artifact. You could say <laughs> that's where Easter eggs were born. That's brilliant. That's a, that's an that's an amazing uh, that's an amazing way to do it. And it's it's brilliant. It's a beautiful way to do. It. And, and originally, that's what I did. I had an Easter egg in that no one would have found accidentally. 
but you could get there. I could get there. And then, but then I thought, you know, well, let's make it a bigger deal. So I went and talked to marketing and tried to talk them into the idea of promoting Easter eggs instead of making it something they're trying to avoid, you know, for the authorship thing. And fortunately that worked. I think I was one of the, also one of the only engineers who ever thought, Hey, let's talk to marketing. <laughs> that was not a common <laughs> thing to do. In, oh man, that was uh, that's engineering. A, that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're right there. So, uh, all right. So, all right. So you, your buddies with Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark, your second big hit million. And then, uh, Lo and behold, Steven Spielberg releases more movie magic, right? June 11th, 1982, the movie E.T. is released to the wonderment of the world, probably one of the most adored emotional stories ever. And then you get a call <laughs> on July 27th, 1982, not just shortly after that. And this is where the, uh, the infamy part of the story kind of starts. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Yeah, they wanted me to do the E.T. game. And it wasn't so much that they wanted me to do the E.T. game. It's that I was the only person on the face of the earth who was willing to say I will do the E.T. video game <laughs> because it came down with a five week schedule. Now, you know, Yars Revenge, for example, took seven months to develop. Raiders of the Lost Ark took 10 months to develop. And those were typical development times for a VCS game. No one had ever done a VCS game in less than five or six months at the absolute minimum. And this was five weeks was all that was there. And so I get a call in my office one day from Ray Kazar, my boss's 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 boss. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> it's like, what's up, Ray? <laughs> and he's like, hey, we need, uh, we need ET for September 1st. Can you do it? I said, absolutely, I can do it. Absolutely. I was super confident. I wanted a mountain to climb. And it was funny because I, I thought, absolutely, I will do this. I will create a game in five weeks. It just seems like a cool thing to do. Sorry to interrupt my spectacular conversation with Howard Scott Warshaw. Have to phone home real quick. And we're back with Howard Scott Warshaw going deeper into the ramifications of saying yes to E.T. And we're back. And I didn't realize I was opening the door to uh, ignominy <laughs> over, <laughs> over the decades and decades. I also didn't realize he had already called my boss's boss to say, hey, we need an E.T. game for September 1st. And he'd already said, no, you can't do it. You can't do a game. If you can't do a video game in five weeks, just can't do it. And after that, Ray Kazar still called me directly. And of course, I said, absolutely, we'll do it. And I did it. But it's a very different mindset when you talk about the design mindset for uh, what's going on. For one thing, coming up with a game for it was kind of tricky because like we were saying before, like for Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a game, there's a movie that lends itself to a game format. E.T. is an emotional tone film. It's not an adventure serial. So where's the game in it? Well, you pick a set piece or something somewhere. It was it was tricky to figure out what it was. And I wanted to make an emotional tone game, which you can't do on the VCS. That's crazy. But I was crazy. So <laughs> that's where I was. But it was also usually when you make a game, what you do is you keep working till it's a good game and then you release it. It's not about time. It's about quality. With E.T., it wasn't about making a good game. It was about making a game that could be done in five weeks, period, and making that as good as possible. So the good game part took a backseat to the getting it done part. So, and I understood that and I designed something that would go in that direction and presented it to Spielberg and eventually got it approved. That's a funny story in the book, about how that went through, but it did get there. And then I got to drive myself into uh, the ground for another five weeks 
and just completely burned myself out. But I delivered a uh, done debug game in five weeks. It's incredible that you were able to pull it pull it off. And I mean, I'm sure you know, just lack of sleep, lack of eating, or not or eating while lack sleeping. of pretty much everything. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, you describe the release of the ET game as you parallel it to the first playable stage of a game. Right. And it was, I mean, basically what I understood was that I understood that in five weeks, I'm not going to do a full development. You don't, you don't plan a six month game and try to do that in five weeks. That's just going to fail. What I could do, usually it would take two to three months to get to a first playable version of a game. Anyway, I just figured what I'll do is I'll try to get the first playable and hope that's it. So there's a conversation that you don't hear very often, which is one person says, Hey, how'd your project go? And the other person goes, Oh, I achieved a hundred percent of my initial design plan. The other person goes, Oh, that's too bad. That's a shame. You never hear that, right? That sounds like a great success, right? Hey, I did a hundred percent of my intention. The thing is, if you really think about it, really great products, really, really successful products. If you look at the original designs for those products, they usually don't actually resemble each other that much. You know, on a successful development, your original plan may be represented 20, 25% in the final product. The reason is not that you don't do the rest. The reason is the rest of it changed because it's better. It actually got better than the original design. And that happens through a process I call rumination, rumination and reflection time. And I knew there wouldn't be any of that on this thing. This was going to be a death march right from the start and just go. And if I can just get to first playable, but it puts an incredible amount of pressure for the original design to work and to be just right. Cause there's no room to look at it, see what's wrong with it. Like on yours, revenge and Raiders and tweak it and tune it and fix it. And so that's what happened is I actually achieved virtually a hundred percent of my original design right at five weeks. And, uh, yeah, some people liked it more than others, <laughs> <laughs> but even, even in the telling of the Yars revenge story, it's like at, at first playable, what became ultimately one of the greatest games, if not the greatest game of all time, nobody liked, right? So if you, that story right. had ended right there, there may not even be any other stories beyond that because the, the real right. fruit from what I'm hearing and the story is while in your, in the title of your book, you take credit for killing the industry. It sounds to me like really it was, it was just the corporate greed and trying to get everything out for Christmas and breaking every rule that they knew to be true to just meet a deadline that uh, maybe you were, if you don't mind me saying, uh, stupid enough to accept. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was the ultimate act of hubris and ridiculousness. <laughs> and in point of fact, there was a poignant moment where uh, just a couple of days into the project, I went to a department meeting and they announced that I was doing the ET game. I had just finished Raiders. And they said, okay, so Howard's doing the ET game. And everybody starts grumbling. Oh, Howard gets to ET. Howard just did Raiders. How come Howard gets to do all the Spielberg title? And so I stood up in the meeting and I said, hey, I said, this is, this is July 30th. I said, hey, this game is due September 1st. Anybody who wants it, just raise your hand. You got it. You can have it. Anybody. Crickets. It was nothing. <laughs> Nobody said a thing. And that was the last time anybody complained that I took the ET game, right? <laughs> but instead of saying, oh, Howard gets to do all the titles, what they said was, oh, man, Howard's crazy. <laughs> <You know? That's, laughs> this is not going to work. And if it does, it's going to be a mess. It was an amazing challenge to take on. It was an absurd thing to do. And you're right. The title of the book, you know, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, that's how I'm reputed to be. But that title is meant to be ironic. A lot of people say to me, 
you know, gee, I don't really think you actually killed the industry. I did not kill the video game industry. I, you know, and I want to be clear about that. And I do go at length into the book about all the factors that really did contribute to the industry falling apart at the time that it did. And it wasn't because of ET, but ET was not causative in the crash, but ET was a symptom of the kinds of things that led to the crash. And I mean, just to sum it up very briefly, think about the idea that the most expensive, by far the most expensive and most valuable license in video game history was given the shortest development time of any product by a factor of five. Why would you go through all that trouble to get a super valuable license and then put it under that kind of development pressure? It's not because you're thinking clearly and making smart moves, right? But it was that kind of situation is symptomatic of the kind of problems that manifested at Atari and ultimately blew apart the industry. It's a really interesting, interesting uh, story of just how it just goes to show you like when you really have to be aware of something when it's exploding to be able to control it. Cause at some point it's just going to, it doesn't continue to explode and grow. You know, you start to, you can take advantage of that. And then the taking advantage of that is what led to Activision and imagine, right? You don't treat your employees right that are making you millions of dollars. And all of a sudden you have these spinoff companies, right? And exactly. Sorry. Right, so ET comes out. You mentioned earlier, there's returns, but you still made, they made 4 million cartridges. They still sold even after returns over 1.5 million units, right? Absolutely. Some people probably love it. Some people, whatever, right? And it's like, at what point then from 1982 to now, we're in between there, I imagine uh, before 2014, but like, where did the internet come in? And all of a sudden where you were like, could sleep at night because you're like, ET is just kind of mostly a memory. And then uh, the internet says, oh, no, Howard, no, we're not letting you off that easy. <laughs> right. That's about 94, 95. The internet's just really starting to get off the ground. And the internet, like, which is another new medium at that point. And it, like every new medium, it has no idea what the killer app is, but it is super hungry for content. And so what's the content that really started to emerge early on with the internet in the mid 90s? That was top 10 lists. Top five, top six, top seven, top three, bottom six, bottom eight, worst 10. Those were the kinds of things. Those were everywhere. And one of the targets was video games, of course. Now, when you start talking about of all time in video games, you have to remember that when, when I was doing video games in the early 80s, first of all, there was no internet. So there was no instant feedback. There was no dropping a game. There was no updating a game. Right? When you put a game out then, it went out once and that was it. And you're never going to put out a rev. You're never going to have an update. So it's like when you talk about all time, there was no internet. There was also, there was a no, there was no all time, right? There was no, there were no oldies you know, in the early eighties. Everything was a newie. There was no history. So it's going to be a while before there is, but then there's the crash and then games revitalized with Sony and Nintendo and all that and uh, Sega. And away we go. And by the mid 90s, now people have retrospective. We look back at the original, the first generation video games, you know, with a little nostalgia that 24, 25 year olds have for when they were 15 or 16 and playing video games. So by then there is there's starting to be the illusion of an all time. And so now they're doing the worst, all the worst video games, the best video games. And what keeps happening is on the best lists, Yars Revenge keeps showing up. And on the worst lists, E.T. keeps showing up. And then in 95, New Media Magazine published an article where they said that 
E.T. was solely responsible for the video game crash of the early 80s. They actually called it out and said the E.T. game destroyed the industry single-handedly, 8K a code, destroyed a $4 billion industry. Now that's power. That, so that's when that started. And by 2000, it was really rolling. And then early in the 2000s, you started to hear some of the rumors of like, oh, they're buried. They buried all those cartridges, millions of cartridges in some cache in the desert somewhere. And there was the speculation of people pretended they found them. And here it was that led to the urban myth. And that urban myth, which we won't go into because I want everyone can go watch the movie. It's Hurried Game Over. Director Zach Penn, which uh, stars Howard, and it is a it's a great telling of that. And you know what? It's a great one hour documentary, and you should spend the time if you're listening to this to go do that. I have uh, one other quick question for you from a pop culture point of view. How was it seeing E.T. in Simpsons episode? Oh, it was awesome! It was awesome. You know, the, of all the places to show up, to show up in an E.T. I mean. E.T. showed up in a Simpsons episode. It was a Treehouse of Horrors episode, I believe, which is probably apropos. (laughs) And Yars Revenge showed up in Walking Dead in a Walking Dead episode once. And that was kind of huge. So my games have made various other media appearances, which feels like a huge success to me. I really that was awesome. I love seeing that. That is why you are a rock star. Can you give, uh, I know it's in the, in the works, but can you give a sick one sixty second update before you go on uh, the Yars Revenge sequel? I can say that of all the things people have done with Yars Revenge, the one thing no one has really done so far is make a sequel. And there's some reworkings that are coming out. There's Yars Reimagined, Yars Recharged. I'm not involved with any of those, but I am currently working on a actual Yars Revenge sequel that is done by me, for me, you know, for for the Atari world and for the Yars Revenge legend to start to expand the Yars legend. It's going to be awesome. It's going to have all the intense and exciting visual and audio high stimulus overload you expect from Yars Revenge, only way more so because now we can do it on systems that are not as limited as the 2600. That's amazing. That would be great. I know a lot of people will be super excited about that. All right, so let's plug the book one more time. Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Yep, you can find it on Amazon or you can go to onceuponatari.com where you can get autographed copies if you'd like. Also, my DVD series, my Once Upon Atari DVD documentary series about working at Atari. It's all there. It's all waiting for you. And the Audible version is coming up in the next couple of months. I think they stopped listening. They just ran off to get it. Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. We're just wrapping up. Howard... Thank you so much for spending time with me. I can't thank you enough. Jeff, it was awesome being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hear you have a certain Yars sign off then. I feel like I need to ask you. Oh, I always (laughs) like to say Yars truly, Howard Scott Warshaw. That's me. Because a friend of Yars is a friend of mine. There's no question about that. All right. Well, now we're friends of Yars. Okay. All right. Well, I look forward to the expanded Howieverse and Yars Revenge the sequel, and all that good stuff. And everyone get the book. It's amazing. It really is. Fabulous. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. That was Howard Scott Warshaw. How amazing was that oral history of Atari 2600 game development, bringing Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. to life. There's so many more stories. Check out Howard Scott Warshaw's book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. All the links are in the show notes. It's such a great book. So great. Well, with the interview over, I did 
have me reflecting. It's interesting, like the whole idea with the emergence of chat GPT now, and where is that going to take us? And kind of looking back at a different time in history where technology was emerging and where that took us. So anyway, it was just it was just an interesting uh, kind of parallel to me. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. We're at the end of the episode. I can't believe it. Special thanks again to my guest, Howard Scott Warshaw. And of course, special thanks to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.